Well, welcome everybody to the Exponential webinar. We're on our book tour and we have Doug Paul, author of Ready or Not, Kingdom Innovation for a Brave New World. So Doug, before we dive into the book, the wisdom, the knowledge, all that we have in this next 60 minutes for us, just, just want to get to know you a little bit. Just tell us about family, pets, pet peeves, things you love. Give us a little bit of background. I swear, if we just go down the pet peeve one, we're going to spend most of our time on that one. Um, I, I live in, in Richmond, Virginia. I'm on the east side of the city. Um, I continue to help uh, lead a church uh, there called Easton Fellowship. Uh, I'm down to a day a week there, and we'll just kind of continue at that pace. And um, married to Elizabeth, we have three kids that are how old are they now? I'm like every 12, 10 and seven. One just had a birthday last week. Doug, uh, this is record. This is recorded. If you get that wrong, you're in trouble. <laughs> uh, we have a great Dane named Oliver who is 180 pounds of loving energy. Um, pet peeves. Uh, man, there's so many. Uh, I, okay. I'll, I'll do one that, it really bothers me when people, when, when they, when they're praying and they don't know what to say, that instead of saying, um, they just say God's name. And so it ends up being like, Lord, we just pray, Lord, that you would, that you would intervene, Lord. And Lord, we ask Lord. And it's, it's a time filler. And it's, if you were to do that with anyone's name, it would sound ridiculous. But when we do it with prayer, like we're just saying, Lord, Jesus, God, Father, whatever, as a time. I don't know. Doug, I'm going to do that like all, all the way through. No, I'm going to do yeah. that, Doug, all the way through this interview, all the way through. Doug. Um, and give us give us one more ideal, ideal holiday. None of us have really got away. We've not enjoyed the last 12 months of different space, different places. I, ideal holiday, ideal break. What would it be? Where would it be? I mean, I think if it's just my wife and I, that's one answer. And if it's the whole brood, it's probably another. Um, give, us, love, give us both. We love the beach when it's all of us. Um, and then my wife and I just love, love traveling together, uh, going to new places. We'll usually, you know, read a book about a place or that was situated in a place and then go visit it. Um, and so whether it was, I think I read a biography on uh, Michelangelo a couple of years ago and we went to Italy and, you know, the whole thing. So Aww. it was it was great. In those amazing days when you could get on a plane. It was amazing. Well, Good day. We, we've got an hour tonight, Doug. We're going to talk around kingdom innovation, and we're going to pick your brains on not just the book and the content, but the process, what it means for leaders and listeners who are tuning in. And so for, first question, really, they, they say timing is everything. Why is now an important time to have a conversation about innovation and the church? I mean, in some regards, it's never a bad time, <laughs> I think, to be having that conversation. The obvious answer is actually probably the wrong answer. I think the obvious answer is, well, it's COVID. Um, and we're either yeah. towards the end of it, on the other side of it, depending on where you live or what your vaccination levels are. Um, but actually, I, I don't think that's the answer, because I think the reason to have these innovation conversations were all present before COVID. Um, yeah. And so, I mean, I always think about, I think there are three things that are like data points that help me think through why is now, I think a kind of like a inflection point moment, hopefully in a positive direction for innovation with the church. 
Uh, one is culture is changing incredibly fast. Uh, and I don't think we, I think we know that, but we don't, we don't know it like from a sociological perspective. So it used to be that culture would change, reinvent itself every roughly the, uh, the rate of a generation. So every 20 or 30 years, culture completely reinvents. In the last 10 years, it sped up to doing that every 18 months, um, which mm. is an unbelievable rate of change. And so if, yeah. if the church is not able to adapt um, with this world that is constantly shifting underneath our feet, if we're not constantly innovating and thinking through like how, how to not, not just be relevant, but to how to, how to help people um, find Jesus and find breakthroughs. They're being discipled by Jesus. Um, we're in, we're in some trouble, I think, if, if, if we're not thinking about that. I think the second one is, at least in the United States, I know it's even more, uh, word is probably dire in, uh, in the UK, is that 60% of people will not be reached by our current models of doing church. Mm. Um, so we have, at best, we could reach 40%, but the majority of culture now are not going to be reached by Sunday-centric programming or anything looking like that. Um, and then the third one is, again, this is sort of like a United States stat, 23.1% of people would identify as the nuns, meaning they don't have any religious affiliation at all, which is more people than would identify as evangelical. Wow. And so we're, we're at this, like, all of these things are colliding together and we, we kind of, it's, it's not looking ourselves in the mirror, but it's just been like, hey, what, what we have experienced for church in the last 50 years, 100 years, 150 years, like it's just not going to fit the bill for this time. And I think we're at a really important moment and we need some really courageous leaders to step into that moment. Yeah, definitely. And, and you're absolutely right. There's a, a convergent point, isn't there? There's convergence of different factors and COVID has just exacerbated, it's magnified those, it hasn't created them. There are things that COVID has brought as challenge, but you're absolutely right, the, the fissures, the cracks were in some of the foundations, the culture shift was happening already, wasn't it? So yeah, you just have to have children to see the, the rate of change and culture to make, make you feel old and realise that the world is moving very, very fast. And the, the book itself, you, you've written it, we'll, we'll talk a little bit later about what do you mean by innovation and kingdom innovation? What's the difference? What does it mean significant for us? But just if we step back and think about the book itself, it's it, it, it's written in a, a narrative form, an imaginative form. There's story, there's sociology, there's such a mix. The style, the genre, the form is 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 different, a little bit different from most Christian leadership books. So just talk to us a little bit about how that came about, why that came about, why why it is slightly different and off-center from the, the same old, same old often that we're, we're engaging with in that space. Yeah, I mean, like, not, not to say that the other leadership books that exist are not great, um, but I think the books that have most influenced me and have, like, sor- served as, like, catalytic in the way that I think or experience the world were not either like super inspirational or very tactical, which I think are the two extremes that you kind of see within Christian leadership. Again, nothing wrong with those two things. Love those two things. They're very helpful. Um, but the ones that, that were really helpful for me ended up being from writers like um, Daniel Pink or Malcolm Gladwell, um, Adam Grant, like 
people who were who were bringing um, tactics and inspiration, but lots of stories and research and doing tons of reading and distilling. And it was it was getting smashed into one like overarching narrative with all this kind of learning along the way. Um, and I, I was just when we decided to to write this book, and by we I mean me, but like a family goes on that journey with you. And so my mm-hmm. wife Elizabeth was definitely on the journey. There was a lot of discussion at the beginning of like, what kind of book is it going to be? Like, what does it feel like? What's it going to do to people? Um, and I, I think that was, it took a lot longer to write, but it was, it was because it's so connected with me as a reader, I, I wanted to write something that was going to be sort of in that genre that I think is in the, in the Christian leadership space, there isn't much in that genre right now. Yeah, and, and as you said, took, took time to write as a journey and you shifted roles dur- during the book. And so you shifted from the focus fully as a two feet in as a, a local pastor doing some work outside to now one foot in the local and one foot across into innovation strategist. J- just tell us about that transition of, of what it is and, and why it is. Why did you make that shift? Well, I think there was a shift that happened, but I don't think it's, I don't, it wasn't the first shift and it won't be the last one. I think the last 15 years of ministry or 17 years has looked like flexing up and down the amount of time that I was giving to the local church. Um, And so like, I just have really, really deep convictions about the local church and that I should always be a leader within it. But that doesn't mean that there is one way that that leadership has to be exerted. And so there have been times where, I mean, for five years where I was like the lead person and all of my time and energy was getting pointed in that direction and just a little bit in d- doing some training outside of that with other churches in the, in the United States. But then there are times where it's, been, it's flexed down to like where it is right now, which is like a day a week local church. And my quote, full-time job is working with, you know, with, pastors and and leaders from nonprofits and denominations and stuff like that. And so it wasn't, it was more like, what's my sense of what, what God is doing in this season? Um, And what does that leadership and influence look like in this season? And I I don't think I'll be in the season forever, but I think that's the, that's the way that I've kind of traditionally thought about it is full-time ministry doesn't have to look like one particular thing. Oh, that's good, Doug. It's good. And, and just for any of you, those those of you that came on slightly late, was Doug Paul, author of Ready or Not, Kingdom Innovation for a Brave New World, just talking to Doug a little bit about the book, the style of the book, the shift for him in terms of his balance of local church, as well as innovation strategist. And just, Doug, you, you touched on it a little bit earlier, and we're, we're going to talk about the book and what is Kingdom Innovation, talk about the stages. So we're going to get into the meat of it um, very shortly. But just you you talked earlier about, you named some of the, the statistics and reasons why now is an important time to have a conversation around innovation and the church. And, and there's often probably some fear or trepidation or, or uncertainty around the word innovation. It, c- it can feel sort of a, a buzzword. It could feel slightly intimidating. It can feel sort of unspiritual almost in, in some world. So there's, there's some there's some baggage, there's some heritage. But before you go to define kingdom innovation, just I want you just to speak again around why 
like why for this moment you talk about in the book that the church needs to change from being reformed to reforming so just talk to us a little bit about the nature of the church right now and, and that process and then then we're going to go on to how does the book help the church go on that journey so talk to us a little bit about those statements the church needs to change from being reformed to reforming and and also just how you see the the, the pre-covid church in america well i think what i mean i think some of what we're experiencing is as human as human gets which is when something has worked, we, we keep doing the thing that works. I'm not saying that's bad. We should, we should do that. But when that happens for long enough, we kind of freeze in time what, what that form or that model looks like. Um, so when you think about the church, we kind of like gilded in gold what the church is supposed to look like, which tends to be very Sunday-centric, very program-driven. Um, and we've defined the church as like a place and a space that we come together as opposed to a people that's being sent out. Mm. And I think what, what you see in like the Reformation was this sense of like cracking the gold or melting the gold off. And like, let's, let's do so. Let's think about the world that we live in and the primal calling of the church. And so the, when the reformers were reforming, they weren't thinking like we're done. Um, and so when, the, when, when they were like doing that work, they were talking about it as a present tense, like ING, reforming, and we will always keep reforming. And eventually what happened over time is that it, yeah, it got frozen again and mm. it became reformed as like, this is a theological tribe that we have now. And I, I think what, what we see in the scriptures and what we see in the history of the church is that pioneering is in our lifeblood. Um, when you look at some of the great social movements of the last two, three, four thousand years, it's been led by the people of God. And mm. I, I just think it's time to reclaim that ancient heritage. That's, that's, that's in our lifeblood. Um, that is who Jesus was, and we are made in his image. So I think... I think pre-COVID, um, there, there were, people were trying some things, but what COVID did was it was an accelerator for everything. And so COVID didn't necessarily introduce as many new elements into the church as we might think. It just accelerated the ones that were already there. And I think in many ways showed like how broken like the, the church is at an operating system level. I mean, the fact that, I mean, they're, they're, we are fairly certain that a third of the people who were attending church pre-COVID are not coming back. And that in the United States, between one and five churches is going to close in the next 18 months. That, that tells us something, um, that COVID was an accelerator, but they, those were things that were already there. But that, all that, that to me, that speaks about opportunity. It means that there is, there's a, there's a, there's something that we can give ourselves to. And there's a, there's a new world that we get to step into that mm. God is already at work in. I'm going to get off my soapbox now, but like uh, yeah, you kept winding up with that question and you let me go. Yeah. <laughs> oh, but, it, but just that, that final statement that God is already at work, that it's not, it's not the domain of the superstar or the expert. It's not, you've got to kind of 
gird your loins and get as much charisma and energy and effort as a leader to make it work, kind of hustle and kind of make it work. But actually God, God is already at work. And so looking for where he's at work rather than trying to cajole or pray or strive or, or push into it. And, but it's, it, it's a, it's been a tough gig to be a pastor over these last, last 12 months, hasn't it? And it, is, it is not for the faint of heart. I mean, like, and you and I are both working with pastors every day. Yeah. I mean, they are, they're really fatigued. Because re- I think there were two, there have been two big emotional pushes that they've had to make. The first was when COVID first hit. Um, and there was like, well, if we can just make it past Easter kind of mentality. Um, and they went past Easter and it was still going. And then I think the second was the fall ministry push where they put a lot of energy getting the fall going and then looking at the numbers. And it's like, oh my gosh, we're not even hitting 35%, 40% of what we were doing a year ago. What's going on? And I think when people hit the beginning of this year, it was like, I don't, I I don't have another jump start to give at this moment. And we're probably going to wait till next fall. Yeah, it's, it's um, a, a European example, but my, my daughter has just started to learn Spanish. And to your comment of the church's model, its mental map, its, its framework and its formation of leaders is in a certain frame and way. I, I'm learning Spanish with her. She's teaching me. She's 13. I'm learning a new language. I have no idea. Picking up words here and there. And it's both just it's brilliant and fun and exhausting and i can speak english i can speak french but it's a spanish is a brand new language to me and it it, for a lot of leaders it's it's like i can i can speak pre-covid church i've been formed in that way i've practiced that i know how to speak that language i'm being asked to speak a brand new language learn a new language learn a new skill drive on the left, not the right, or vice versa. And it, it, it's a stretching piece, isn't it? The disruption and the shift to, to learn something new in the midst of in change and challenge is not, not easy. Um, <clears throat> we're going to just continue to move forward. I'm going to ask one final question. And then those that are listening in tonight, do feel free or today or this afternoon or this morning, wherever you are in the world, um, with Doug Paul, innovation, kingdom innovation, we're looking at re- re- author of the book, Ready or Not. Um, do put your questions on the chat bar. Brooks will bounce them through to us and we'll, we'll pick them up from Doug. So if you've got something you want to hear from Doug, potentially from the book or what he's sharing tonight, do bounce it through as well. Um, just give us a simple definition then. Kingdom innovation. So ready or not, kingdom innovation for a brave new world. What What is or what isn't kingdom innovation? So the way that I talk about it has three parts to it, but it's very simple. Kingdom innovation is it's new it works and it brings glory to Jesus. So kingdom innovation is new. It works and it brings glory to Jesus. It's new, meaning it doesn't have to be like there was the light bulb and there wasn't a light bulb. And there is this giant jump between them. That's called an invention. That is a type of innovation, but sometimes the most profound kingdom innovations are just little tweaks of something. It's new, but it's a tweak. So think about Alpha, right? Like Alpha, when Nikki Gumbel first discovered it at the church he was just starting to work at at Holy Trinity Brompton, it was, it was just a course for people who were becoming new members. It was like a new discipleship course for people. But when he looked at it, he was like, you know what? That actually has some legs to it when we think about 
how it could be like an evangelism strategy. And so like 25, 30 years later, we think about alpha as in terms of like evangelism and 30 million people who have been through this thing. But it started as, it was just a discipleship program. Nikki Gumbel mm-hmm. tweaked it just a little, but it was still new in the tweak. So there's this, it could be brand new. It's dropped from heaven. It's never existed before, but it could just be a little tweak. And there's a whole continuum of what that is. The second thing is it works, meaning it can't just, like I've got on this piece of paper here, I've got some ideas of things that I'm tinkering around with right now. Um, but it can't just look good on a piece of paper. Like it actually has to work in real life. Now that doesn't mean it has to work immediately. Sometimes it, it takes a long time to experiment with something before we finally find that, oh, this thing, it works. Um, and then the last one, like we have to remember that Jesus is the center of the story. The innovation is not the center of the story. I am not the center of the story. It, it's all about Jesus. And so a kingdom innovation is going to be advancing Jesus's glory and his mission. And just, just talk to us a little bit, Doug. So it's new, it works, it gives glory to Jesus. Just, just talk to us about the journey of how that's been refined over, over the years in you, because that is a sharp, clear, simple definition. But that, I'm sure, didn't, wasn't light bulb and came out the sky, as you said, right away. So how, how have you sort of distilled that and, and come to that design and that conviction? What, what's been some of the journey, the ups and the downs of that process? I mean, some of it was like I was intuitively working with churches and nonprofits and, and denominations around some of these ideas. Um, but I wanted to understand it more. And that's really the, where the book came from was like, I want to, me, it's for me. I want to understand this thing that I'm doing already. And so I went down this like journey of just reading everything I could get my hands on as it related to innovation. But most of it is around like products, um, whether that's like applications <clears throat> in Silicon Valley or it's actual like things that you're holding in your hand or a, a car or whatever it is. But what we're talking about are social movements. Like, yeah. like kingdom innovation is a kind of social movement. And so I wanted to, I wanted to look at the way that lots and lots of people were defining innovation. Um, and then I, I just kept distilling and distilling and distilling to like, what's the bare essentials of what it is that's happening in this. And even in conversations with you, Rich, kind of talking, going back and forth around how you think about innovation um, to finally getting it down to like, it's new, it works, it brings glory to Jesus. That's, that's ultimately what this thing is. And being able to double click on each of those, I felt was, a, was something really important. It's good. And even Doug, just I, I, my hope is it's encouraging to the listeners that there's an iterative process that you even you've gone on to come to this point of clarity in terms of what it is, Kingdom Innovation, writing around it, and then actually being able to put some tools and some some training pathways around it. I, I do think often people feel like they're just waiting for the light bulb moment. It's like it has to be something that nobody has ever, ever thought about. Or, and that, that's the kind of, it, it's got to, it's got to be brand new, you completely unique, or your comment of it can't just look good on paper. It has to be real and, and work in real life, not first time. I think often, again, people, and, and I can, I know I can, there's a paralysis almost of sort of stay in your head and will it work first time? And if it doesn't work first time, so that sense of sort of 
fail forward, trial, trial multiple times, have a go, learn, iterate and grow. Re- helpful to hear those two. And then finally, that sense of give, gives glory to Jesus. It's not, it's not your, your kind of acclaim, your ministry, your bottom line, your number of followers, but actually this is, this is kingdom innovation, not sort of worldly innovation or personal, personal glory. That's, they're really three helpful marks. So <clears throat> just talk to us. So you, you break, break it down not necessarily sort of into a formula, but into a framework or a roadmap of five distinct stages and phases of, of kingdom innovation. So just give us a quick one, two, three, four, through to five. And then probably the second follow-up question to that is just give us a little bit of sort of game time. Where, where do you see people getting stuck? Where do people get confused? What are some of the, the tough kind of tough bits, battlefield struggles for people as they go through these phases? Yeah. All right. I'm going to give, I'm going to try to get through that. There are, there are five phases when we're working uh, with a, with a church or with an organization that we work through with this innovation pathway. I'm going to try to give it to you in 90 seconds or less. Oh, Doug, um, come on. Love a challenge. Let's do it. Come on. It's up. not going to be 90 seconds. 120 no, it's seconds not. or less. <laughs> uh, so the, Mate, you're negotiating upwards. You can't do I, that. Uh, <laughs> what about 150 seconds? All right. If, and if you could, Rich, would you mind putting it each phase in the chat when I, when I, when I get yep. through it? So the, um, the first phase is identification and it is about identifying what is the, what is the, um, the problem that we are trying to solve? Because normally we're, we're asking the wrong questions when we're looking for innovation. And so what we need to do is we actually need to start with our why questions. Um, and a classic example of this is small groups. When small groups aren't working, we'll say something like, how do I fix my small groups? Um, but actually the thing that we need to start with is in identification is like, why did we start small groups in the first place? Like what was the original thing that small groups was trying to solve? Because it might, if, if you were trying to like get people to stay at your church, that's a different answer and would lead to a different innovation then we are trying to start a disciple-making movement. Those would lead you in two very different directions. So identifying the innovation you're going after is your first phase. Second phase is ideation. And that's just about coming up with new forms, practices, ideas, paradigm shifts that you can actually test and put into practice. So at the end of ideation, you actually have something very, very simple that you're going to use in the third phase which is experimentation. So I want to experiment with this idea. I have a new form of making disciples who can make disciples or new evangelism strategy, or I mean, fill in the blank. It could be anything that you want to experiment with to actually make sure that it does the thing that you think it could do. Now let's say that it actually works. You're like, Oh my gosh, we've, we've, we've tried it enough times. We've made tweaks and adjustments. It's now working phase four is uh, mobilization. And so it's worked now. The thing that we're now asking is like, why did it work? And what were the different components of how this thing worked? Because if we could understand it and if we could make it really simple, we can train people and we can codify what it is that we've learned and train people so that we get to our fifth phase, which is about multiplication. How do we get this breakthrough in the hands of as many people as possible? And at the same time, lower the barriers that would keep this thing from multiplying. So 
identification, ideation, experimentation, mobilization, and then finally multiplication. So those, those are the five. And the, the book goes, obviously goes into a, a lot more depth and it's using stories to really illustrate what that looks like. Rich, I'm going to, I want to flip it back to you. Actually, we've had this conversation a bunch of times. When you look at those five phases, where do you think leaders get hung up? What, what's the brick wall that may, might derail them as they're going after innovation? Yeah, it's a great, great question. I think probably the the first stage is often one of the hardest stages. So, so the identification, what is the problem we're trying to solve and actually understanding the why and the question behind the question. So as you said, it's not just how do we fix the vehicle or how do we improve the numbers or how do we get through to Easter, Christmas, wherever it be, actually going deeper and going broader in terms of your question. So often there's a sense of almost answering the wrong question or answering the first question rather than actually answering the important question. So, so I think often we're, we're busy but not necessarily effective and we're fixing things rather than actually going broader than that. And probably linked to the, the second piece, the ideation, I think, again, there's probably – a, a lack of imagination in in the church right now and so and some of that is that as you were saying the sort of the well-worn paths and church our imagination for church is just a a, a bigger sunday more people there on sunday or more people in groups so that there isn't always that imagination about social transformation city transformation what what does our church have to say and how can it be good news to the the poverty rates or the discrimination rates or, or diversity unity whatever it be in our city in our region so we, we've not necessarily always got uh, the scorecard that helps us to be imaginative and, and actually come up with ideas so we're trying to get better at what we've got with who we've got rather than looking looking above and beyond so i think probably there's there's blockages at one and two definitely in terms of sort of lack of imagination, asking and answering the wrong question. And then I think probably the the challenge, which is where you are in terms of almost right, right at the end, it's the back end of the process. So probably sort of coming into four, why did it work? And then five, how do we multiply it? Um, I mean, we said <laughs> often being a pastor is tough, be it your eldership, your senior team, like it, it's hard work. And so when something works, it's almost like you've been pushing the boulder uphill. You, you kind of arc the, arc the hill and it starts to roll down again. You just sort of go, oh, it, it worked. Let's just pull, stop, and just enjoy enjoy the view for a moment rather than continue on and look, look to disperse. So I think in that sort of back end of the cycle, four and five, actually that when you're moving towards kind of mobilization and multiplication, not just sort of resting on your laurels and resting in the, fir the first blush of spring and a little bit of sun on your face, but actually continuing on to then multiply. So it's not just a moment of breakthrough or a season of breakthrough, but it's actually scaled and it's actually generational. So we're not always sure why it worked because it's instinct or we don't actually often ask why it worked just because we're enjoying success and, and a breakthrough. And then actually the discipline the discipline to to take it to generations beyond just the, the the one season or the one leader, I think, is is a challenge. So almost 
getting started and then really seeing the impact beyond one one breakthrough or one place i think probably they're they're two of the blockages i've seen definitely yeah i think i think and you see some of the from some of the questions that are coming in um like one of the questions is what have you found are the best practices to begin in order to help leadership launch into this mindset one another one asks, how can we stay fresh and continue to innovate because after 10 years we're old again yeah and I think an, another way of asking this question is like can lightning strike twice? Because one of the things that we've seen is in, in churches, they'll, they'll grab what feels like lightning in a bottle and they'll have a season of breakthrough. Um, and and it's, it's like, they've got a fresh wind. They've got, they've got a new wine skin. They're trying new things. And then it, it, it does it. And it feels like, it's like, well, that was, that was in the past. And we're just trying to catch the same magic energy again. Um, from the past. And I think there's this, it, it's, it's the first question is like, how does kingdom innovation happen? But I think the second question is like, how do we create a culture of innovation? Um, so it's not lightning strikes once, but it's like, it keeps striking as we're following what Jesus is doing. And I think that's a, I mean, that's a, that's a big conversation, but I think that's a really important one. Uh, it, it's a vital one probably more so in the North American context and the European context of not just how do we hire an innovator or how do we find an innovative leader? So we're, we're outsourcing innovation to the charismatic, creative, pioneering leader, and we're just cheering them on and carrying their bags and helping them out, but actually creating a culture of innovation where actually everyone has it within them not necessarily to create the light bulb or the plane or the car, but, but actually everyone within a culture of innovation is able to, to take, take a role, play their part in that. So what, what would that look like, Doug, to, to take it beyond just the, the one or two instinctive or innovative or creative leaders to actually create a culture of innovation? So a church where, where everyone is on this journey and in this adventure. I'll give two things that I think if, I mean, if, if you're watching this, like you, I think you can do both of these things tomorrow. Um, the first is I think it would be really helpful if every church, like it's, it's like, how do we, how do we get this into the culture? So this is just becomes who we are. I think it would be really helpful if every church just decided how many experiments a year they wanted, they wanted to go after. So like in the next 12 months, how many experiments do you want to try? One, is it three? Is it five? Like whatever it is. And then w once you decide how many and you decide like, who are the people that God seems to have really gifted for this and is set aside for this experiment, actually start sharing the stories of what they're trying and celebrate what it is that they're doing. Because I mean, like you probably all know the leadership maxim, like what you celebrate, people repeat. And so if you just say like, look, we're not, we're not saying that even what we're experimenting with is where everything is going. We have no idea. It's an experiment. Um, but what we want to get into the water is obedience, which is if we think God is up to something, we want to join him and it might work. It might not work. And that's like the, the point isn't whether or not it works on the front end. The point is that we're being obedient and faithful to what God is doing. And then as we tell stories, we're celebrating faithfulness. And what we're, what we're actually doing is we are saying that faithfulness and innovation can mean the same thing.
And I think that's a really important one. So one of the, the one of the um, questions was, what are some strategies for getting people on board? How do we break past the hype of like the new thing resistance? Well, it's, I think we have to talk about like, we aren't trying everything. We're trying a few things. We're telling stories. But the thing that we're celebrating is not that it's working, but that people are being faithful. And I think yeah. that's how you get it into the water over time. So if you do that for like three years straight, you will have a different culture in three to five years than you do today. Let me, let me pause there. That's one practical thing. Rich, you've done a lot of work on what I just said. Like, what are, give, give me some, give the people some thoughts. Yeah, I mean, I, I just want to, I will. I just want to start with what you said, which was a, a throwaway comment of, if you do that over three years, and I think that's probably one of the things I would name is that you don't create a culture of innovation by a six-week preaching series or by announcing it from the platform or putting that as a value on your website or your wall. You actually have to commit to a journey to create that culture, not, not just an innovative culture, any culture. And I think in our sort of Amazon click and collect world of sort of I buy it today, I get it tomorrow, or maybe even maybe even tonight if I order it early enough. And sort of it's you just click your fingers, you buy now, pay in five years time. We're, we're so instantaneous as a culture. It's like I want to be able to do that now. It's like me learning Spanish. I, I would love to just start speaking fluent. I can't, I won't, it'll take me time to learn the basics. And so I think probably the first thing you said was this takes time. Yeah. Number one. Um, number two, celebrate. And in celebration, I think it's it's shifting the paradigm and the way people think. And that allows them to then shift the way they act. So we can't just push people to be more innovative if actually they're, they, they fear failure or they don't have the security to get it wrong once or twice. Or they think that if they do get it wrong what will somebody else say? So that celebration, Doug, that you're talking about, actually celebrate obedience rather than success, faithfulness rather than fruitfulness. That Faithfulness is in our domain. Fruitfulness is in God's domain. So we're, we're called to hear and obey. We actually need to trust God for the outcomes. We, we do the input. We trust God for the output and the outcomes. Go, I think you hit something here that kind of goes back to the those five phases. It's really important that I want to name. So we're, we are used to like instant gratification. So I click Amazon because I have Amazon prime. I'm going to get it within the next two days. It's beautiful. But that has been the way that we, we have thought about church programming for a very long time. And so look, I'll paint you a picture of what this looks like. Lots of pastors read the purpose-driven church and the purpose-driven life. And they're like, Man, these, these all church campaigns, these 40 day campaigns, that sounds great. I'm just going to plug and play that. And so what they did is they took the thing that Saddleback did. They imported it into their church. They ran the 40 day campaign. All of it was done for them. Now, I'm not saying this is bad. I'm just, this, this is what we do. And then now I'm a purpose-driven church. But the problem, we're like, man, it doesn't, why isn't it working here? like it did in Saddleback, which is in Orange County, California. And the, the, the answer is probably because it, it's not that you always have to reinvent the wheel, but you don't live in Orange County, California. You live in probably a different place. But we have, we've just been taught, you just plug and play someone else's program and boom, you're going to get what they got. 
And I think what what that is, it, it says something, which is we assume that it's going to work. And the, the connective tissue to the, the five phases we looked over is I think most Christian leaders skip the experimenting phase altogether. I actually don't think that we experiment. We just assume if, it, if I think it's going to work in my head or on this piece of paper, I'll scale it churchwide overnight because that's how, like, we've actually been taught to do that. Like you read purpose driven one day, you implemented the, the churchwide campaign three months later. And again, I'm not saying you're bad. Like I, I was my first ministry position. We did that. And it was actually wildly successful for our church when we did that. So it's not that it can't happen. It's that we, we, we kind of have to circle and star and highlight that like that third phase experimentation, we don't have much track record with. And so we will skip that. We'll scale something church wide. It usually stalls or doesn't work. And we're like, well, what happened? And it's like, well, we didn't, we didn't experiment with it enough to make sure that it worked here before we scaled it for everyone else. That's a bit of a rabbit trail, but I think it's an important one. Yeah, and, and I think probably my, <clears throat> my comment just to that, and then we're, we're going to continue through. I'm going to ask you a couple more from the, the chat bar and the questions that, that we, we've discussed as well is to – to your third point of kingdom innovation, that it gives glory to God, I, I think just innovation is a means to an end. It's not an end in itself. Yeah. So, so it's a means to the end of fulfilling the Great Commission, pursuing your defining prize as a church, living into your kingdom potential as a leader, your team being mobilized and releasing their kingdom potential as disciple makers. Innovation is is how God works in us to get us to where he desires to get us and, and how he works in us to, to help us and form us and transform us into who we're called to be. And so, yeah, almost, and I, I saw the same with missional communities and, and the danger is we will potentially see the same with microchurch that they become, that the vehicle becomes the vision. So yes. it's about missional communities or about microchurch and, and it's, it's, it's a frame. It's a means to an end, not an end in itself. So it's not we do missional communities or why. That's like a people carrier. Or it's like I have a people carrier. That's great, but it actually takes me places and takes my kids places, and it gets me here and it gets me there. It, it the vehicle is just a vehicle. You don't say when you like you. T I I said ideal holiday. You didn't answer plane. You told me where you would go, and so often we get lost in the innovation itself, the vehicle itself, the product, or the, as you said, the kind of the process itself, rather than the why, why are we doing it? What's the end? Definitely. I mean, and I think, I mean, I talk about this in the book, but one of my favorite stories is Sunday school was started because they wanted to teach kids who weren't in school because they were nine and working in factories to read they wanted to get them a better economic life when they got older and they felt that education could do that. And they were right. And they wanted to expose them to the gospel. And so the way that they taught kids to read was to teach them to read the Bible. That's what Sunday school was for the first hundred years. It was a massive justice and evangelism initiative. But when, when some things in culture shifted, what, what eventually happened is the vision became the vehicle. So Sunday school became the thing 
that we were trying to sustain and it became education for people already in church. But that's not where it started. And I think that, that that's a great example of what it is that you're talking about, where over time, if we, if we don't remember, like, why did we begin this thing, that identification phase? What was the mission it was trying to deliver? Eventually, we become, we become more committed to the vehicle than the vision that the vehicle was supposed to get us to. Yeah, and that, that links to one of the questions on the chat bar, Doug, of is it mainly about packaging and communications and style of church meetings with the same gospel content, or is it about new areas of action, social issues, Christian response to climate change? So there's there's a real sense, isn't there, of it's not just doing better and being better with what we've got and who we've got, but it's it's it really is a gospel commission, isn't it, and a disciple-making commission? Yeah, and it... it- the answer to that question is like, yes, like it, it can be about communications. It can be about style of church. It can be about meeting or connection, but it can also be about pushing into new areas and sectors of society where there is very little access to the gospel, very little access to biblical justice, very little access to any understanding of who Jesus is or spiritual family. Um, and so it's, it's, it can be literally anything and everything And what excites me about this conversation is that like, that's our history in terms of like the people of God. It has been like moving to all the cracks and crevices of society with the good news of Jesus and all of the changes that would bring if the gospel were true and embodied in a group of people. And and in terms of like helping to bring about this change, sort of COVID was such a disruption on so so many levels that there is we are human consumerism is rife we swim in the waters of consumerism and and being a christian is no no different sadly often than being a non-christian so that sense of innovation this is a threat one of one of the questions it's a big threat to, to comfort how do we shift hearts and minds without sort of totally blowing up our church, blowing up ourselves, confusing or, or sort of chastising our people? How, how do you go about this that's not just sort of 100 miles an hour, hit a wall, bump? So I, I think this, this is both practical and about paradigm shiftings. And, and how do we get from one to the other? I think the thing that experiments do is it feels very bite-sized. It doesn't feel like I'm, I've, I've, you know, I've lit the dynamite, I'm throwing it into the church and we're just going to watch it blow up. It's like over here on the side, we're going to try an experiment and we, don't, we literally don't know what's going to happen with it. It could produce micro churches, which I think is going to be a huge wave in, in the next like 30 years for the North American church, or it could be a big dull dud and nothing ha- like, and that either is okay. But as we tell stories about those things, it's going to normalize it for, for, for people. But the people that we start experimenting with um, is, is this principle called work with the willing. So we work with the people who are like, yeah, I'd like, I know it's going to cost me some comfort. That's okay. And I'm actually kind of game for that. I'm up for it. And they're saying, yes, I think what we do is we spend so much time, like expending so much leadership capital, working with people who have said no, and trying to convince them that we aren't spending near the amount of time working with the people who have said yes and are like, come on, let's go, let's do this thing. Um, The thing that ultimately I think convinces the people who have said no 
isn't, it's not going to be like biblical arguments. It's not going to be guilting or shaming them. It's not going to be coming with like the best, like logical conclusion to why this is best for the church. It's going to be stories of change. Um, And the only way to convince them is to like actually work with the willing, tell stories, tell stories of change, and eventually hearts and minds will shift over time. So again, you can't microwave that. But I think that's that's what that process of paradigm shift looks like, because we recognize in the human experience that what we do is we experience things and we make decisions. And then we find the logical reasons for why we've made that decision. Um, And and so the things that's going to change people's hearts and minds are going to be as the Holy Spirit is working in those stories that they're hearing. I think at least I'm not like the voice of God saying this is the way to do it, but. In my experience, and as as I've kind of studied this one, yeah, I, no, I I would agree, Doug. And as you said, this is a conversation we we have often. We work together in this in this place and space. And a couple of the ways that I I paint that picture that you're describing. One is the difference between a marathon and a sprint. So often often it's a marathon, not a sprint, is used about perseverance. But in this context, I would use it about participation. So when you think of a a 100-meter sprint, you've got eight lanes, one start line, the gun goes off, and everyone leaves the start line to sprint towards the finish line. Same time, same race, same lanes, and they're they're off. Whereas if you think of the way a marathon starts, you don't have like a 10-mile wide start line with everyone shoulder to shoulder. The gun goes off and everyone starts the marathon you're corralled and there's waves so there's this kind of first group go shuffle forward second group go third shuffle forward and everyone's running the marathon but some at the front are often running and will run four minute miles and do the marathon in two hours something way at the back shuffling forward and might take 20 minutes half an hour an hour to get to the start line is that the person running for charity that will take sort of nine hours and cross the finish line, but get a lot of sponsorship money for, for whoever. And so there's a different expectation, different pace, all running the marathon, but often we try and make it a sprint rather than a marathon to release, as you say, release some on the edge and waves of change rather than trying to get those at the back to run four minute miles. And, and it just, it, it's not, not helpful. And then, and the other way I talk about it is, you have goldfish and elephants and rabbits and elephants. So elephants never forget. So one, one failure, I am a failure. I'm never doing that again. It didn't work. Goldfish, find your goldfish, short-term memory. I tried, didn't work. I tried, it didn't work. I tried, it didn't work. I, I got it. And the same that the elephant rabbit also works for multiplication. So the, the elephant has one baby over a long amount of time, rabbits, lots and lots of multiplication. And so you're wanting sort of conversations at the center, slow and steady, that people are just able to slowly move and try one thing occasionally. Yeah. And then on the edge, commission the rabbits and the goldfish to go go and experiment and explore. And then as long as they come back and share their learning, then everyone everyone goes on that journey. We're, we're nearly nearly at the end, Doug. We've got 10 minutes. We've got a couple, couple more questions and I, I want to land a couple of questions with you. We'll talk about the book and where people can get it and how they can dig into it a little bit further. Just, I suppose, a couple, couple of final questions, sort of 
that, that you can look at this moment as a, an adapt or die moment. There's, there's sort of great potential in this moment for the church to come to fullness and maturity. You, you named the stat of one in one in five North American churches will potentially close. So there's, there's real threat in this moment um, as well. What, what do you want to say to the listeners as uh, a word of encouragement for them, a word of challenge for them? What, what would you say? You, you've got their ear. You've probably got their hearts, their heads. So what, what would your word be to those leaders who are listening, whether they are part of a church, lead a church, are trying to plant a church, missionaries, marketplace leaders. What what would you say to a, a Christian at this moment in history right now? Uh, yeah, that wasn't on our pre-questions, Rich. Um, I think I'd say two things. One is the gospel is not at risk. Um, what is important to recognize is Jesus has a very simple plan for changing the world. And it is about disciples who make disciples who then go into every sector of society and are, are going to embody the gospel there, both as individuals and as spiritual families. Like, and the, the thing that we have to remember is that the chain is unbroken. So it started with Jesus, then it started with the 12, and those people made disciples, and those people made disciples, and those people made disciples, and on and on and on. And you're here because the chain is unbroken. Um, and so, like, the gospel is not at risk. So I think at some point, like, we can, we can all take a big breath. Um, we can rest into Matthew 11, like, take my yoke upon you. Um, Jesus is the one who is doing the heavy lifting. The second thing that I would say is, I do think that God is, has set aside um, a group of leaders for such a time as this, um, that we are in a such a time as this moment, and every generation to a certain degree probably feels that way. And that's, I don't think that, that is bad, but we're in that moment. And now is the time, I think, to really dig into your own spiritual life and ask the Lord what is it that he is asking you to lead and how do you faithfully do that um, for such a time as this? Like being really clear minded um, and ruthless around like, what's this world that we live in and what is it no longer? Um, because the world that we live in today is not the world that all of us grew, grew up in. If you were part of the church, that world has ceased to exist in large part, not all the way there are, parts of the of North America that still look like it did 30 years ago, but for the most part, it doesn't. And so what does it look like to lead in this brave new world? And I think that's the place where we need the Lord to speak and to give us some real clarity in our leadership. That's great, Doug. And what, what I hear in you, just, just reflecting on your words and reflecting back to you, that, that clarion call to, to spiritual formation and being a disciple first before a leader, before an innovative and strategic and dynamic leader, that, that sense of be a disciple and then the, the engine and the ethos of disciple making, be a disciple who makes disciples. And, and innovation is, is the fuel and the framework for you to live out those two primary calls to be a disciple and a disciple maker. Yeah, which goes to... Like one of these questions, what does innovation look like in family Christian life? Like, I, I think when we talk about innovation, we, we talk really high level. Like, we're, how do I change the structure of our church, the organization, the culture, these high macro level things? 
But almost, almost always innovation starts like in the laboratory of your life first. That's where it's, it starts at your kitchen table. And so it's, it's, I mean, I'll give you a very like right now example in our life. My, my wife and I have been talking about like where our kids are at spiritually and what it looks like. I mean, there are first disciples. What does it look like for us to invest in them? Um, and one of the things that we've noticed is that as they've gotten older, some of the language that we, that we had been using, like just isn't as effective as it was. And the way in which we've been talking about God moving in the life of our kids and our family with them um, has gotten not just stale, but like, it's just not, it's not, it's not happening. And we need to develop some new practices. And so one of the things that we just started doing is a thing called Taco Tuesday, where we, I mean, like every Tuesday, they love tacos. Um, we're we're going to be making tacos together and fresh guacamole. And then we're all going to be sharing a time in the last week where we felt like the Lord was breaking in. Um, we, we use the, the language, the, a Kairos moment. Um, and what do we feel like God is doing? And that's just going to be a new weekly practice that we are, we are putting in. It just felt like some, we were up against something and kids grow up. And so that's normal. But like, as we're thinking about that, that is a kind of innovation. Mm. We're adapting something, we're tweaking something, but it starts at our kitchen table. Um, but of course I'm thinking, how does this multiply out to the wider church that I'm helping lead? But first and foremost, it's my kids, my wife, my family. Love it, Doug. And, and that's, for me, in my, my world, I would talk about principles and practice or skeleton and skin. So it's that sense of a universal biblical principle, but actually a contextual practice that we innovate different culture, different season of life, different ministry. So the innovation comes, how does that look and how do we live that and embody that in this moment, this interaction, whatever it be. It's good. good. And the final final piece, Doug, as we, we come into land, just want to name and flag the book. So ready or not, Kingdom Innovation for a Brave, brave New World. Just your, your heart is going to come up here, your heart and your hope. So I'll be able to, to find it at dougpaul.org. What's your hope for somebody that would open those pages? What's your hope and your heart for them as a disciple and, and as a, an, an agent of innovation? I want to, I mean, like the, the book is hope filled. Like you will walk away. I think you, you will walk away feeling like God is on the move. I want to join God in what he's doing. And I feel like I've got a sense of some practical ways that I can do that. Um, this is not a deconstructionist book. This is, this is a book where we look at the history of the people of God and the way that social movements happen and then breaks it down so that like you being inspired by the Holy spirit can join Jesus and what he's up to in this world. Love it. As we come into land, I just want to give you the opportunity. Just we've got a minute and a half left. I'd love you just to pray a simple prayer for all of those that are listening in that, that they're, I'm sure imagination has been sparked, their minds have been stretched, their hearts have been buoyed and encouraged, but there'll also be lots of questions. How do I do this? Where do I start? What does it look like tomorrow morning? Have I got it in me? Is it, is it somebody else has got passed me over and dot, dot, dot. So just, I'd love you just to, to finish by praying for those that are listening. Yeah. So in the name of Jesus, I pray uh, for, for courage, I pray for wisdom. 
I pray for hope. Lord, for those who feel uh, lonely or numb, we pray, Lord Jesus, that you would draw near. We ask that you would bring comfort. For those who are feeling inspired to go and to go out, Lord, we pray that they would do so in your power, that the Holy Spirit, which is inside of them, would lead and would guide them. Lord, we, we pray that you would put people in their path who are open to what it is that you're doing, and we pray for people in their path who would be able to make a spiritual deposit in their life. We pray these things in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Doug, thank you, sir. I, I think it is an incredible book, but more than that, I, I've seen up close and personal as a friend, your life. So I know that what's written on the pages is not just good ideas and great ideas. It is lived out, led in a local context, in a personal context. So I can't recommend you and the book highly enough. So really appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on this exponential webinar, the book tour, virtual book tour, ready or not, Kingdom Innovation for a Brave New World, DougPaul.org. Doug, thank you for your time. We appreciate you. Appreciate your ministry. God bless you. Having me.